Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. It's a delight to have Matt McDarby, author of The Cadence of Excellence, professional sales manager and advisor to the stars within sales. Matt, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Marcus. I'm thrilled. Looking forward to the conversation. <laughs> you may live to regret that. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Matt, could you give the listeners a couple of minutes on your journey, how you got to where you are today? Sure. So going back to the beginning, I graduated from the university with a degree in English literature, of all things, which, of course, led me to a career in, in professional sales. I started out with, uh, with designs on being a writer, a public relations writer, and quickly found, having graduated in a time of recession, that I couldn't pay the bills. My student loans would, go, uh, would keep gathering interest, and if I didn't get a real job, I was going to be in a world of trouble. So I'd open up the uh, aperture a bit. And because there was a recession, really, the only decent paying jobs that were available were sales jobs. So I went home from school, got my first selling job for an IT services organization, literally driving around and picking up computers and monitors and printers and getting them repaired and driving them back. And uh, that was where I cut my teeth on selling, prospecting, phone in hand all the time. And then over the, over time, kind of grew into progressively more, you know, roles with more responsibility, bigger sales. But honestly, the first, I'll say, the first eight or nine years of my selling career, I was pretty average in terms of performance. And I'm, on my best days, I was pretty good. And on my bad days, I really sucked. I was not very good. <laughs> That's All in hindsight, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> About fifteen years ago, I was recruited by a company called Huffweight, a company I'd never heard of, founded by a guy whose name was only vaguely familiar, Neil Rackham, and picked up the book, picked up Spin Selling, and then read Major Account Sales Strategy, and then read Managing Major Sales, and then read Rethinking the Sales Force, and, and went to work for that company and really learned why I'd struggled so much earlier in my career also learned why on my best days, I was able to get much better results than on other days. So really that, that Rackham's research and the books and working for that organization for seven years, I learned so much. It's kind of, it's painful for me to think about how ineffective <laughs> I was back in the early days, but whatever, <laughs> live and learn. So I eventually became, I was a sales exec, worked with their biggest global accounts, and eventually was the VP of enterprise sales at Huthwaite at the end of my time there, and then left to start a company that was focused on sales management development. Because we were, and I know you spent your share of time in the traditional sales training world, right? And you, this will probably sound familiar to you. We sold the same programs and the same content and tools. We had great facilitators. We did really good work at Huthwaite. But yet I found some clients got great results and others got no result, no change. And the difference with everything else being equal, the difference between the organizations that got, that got a great result and the ones that did not was the sales management team and how engaged and effective they were. Absolutely. So I left that company and started my own because it really was 10 years ago, there weren't that many companies focused on the development of sales managers. So there were there were people selling how to coach spin or how to coach strategic selling, right? They're about specific methodologies, but nobody was really focusing on developing the whole sales manager. 
So that's well, what I did. What, what's really depressing is that sales management is without question the single most precarious job in the enterprise. And yeah. they <clears throat> typically have no more than 5% of the global training budget thrown at them. The training they do have is more often than not, Matt, congratulations, you've been performing really well in sales, and now you're a sales manager, off you go. And Jonathan Farrington was saying a couple of months ago that only 6% of managers are actually qualified to be in the sales management position, which is a terrifying statistic based on his research. And the difference a great manager can have, you know, it's the same thing with sports teams where they have a great manager, an average team can perform at the stellar level. Why is it you think that senior management and leadership don't put enough time, money, effort, resource, and love and care into developing managers so when they do move from a sales role and move into a management position, they're actually ready for it? Well, senior managers that don't make that investment, I think they just don't understand the role. Fundamentally, they just don't even understand the demands on a sales manager's time and what he or she has to contend with on a daily basis. We, and I'm speaking as a professional, like, we, like you said, professional sales manager. So having been in the role, doing interim sales leadership jobs, and probably before my career is over, I'll do it, I'll do it again several times. You're at the junction point between strategy and execution. You've got to deal with administrative detail, minutia to big picture, right? Planning, business planning, forecasting, you name it, right? And everything and anything in between. Plus you've got clients, client demands, and you've got people who report to you whose development is really your responsibility. I don't know how many other jobs are like that in an organization. And so I think they just fundamentally, CEOs and C-level folks who don't make that investment, they just, they don't get it. And if they haven't done the job, there's no way they could get it. What do you love about sales management? You have so much impact on the results of a business. I love, that's the thing I love about sales management is, is you, you know, it's one thing to have a great marketing strategy. It's, you know, to have great messaging, to have a vision for product. But if you don't have an effective approach to carrying that all out, it's all meaningless. Mm. So I think sales managers give meaning to a lot of the work that other people do. How do they do that? Well, they translate the value that we presume in our products and make it so that the people are going out into the field, talking to clients, can actually translate that in a compelling sort of way, a real world way. That's hard. I mean, if you had to do only that, if your one job was nothing more than coaching individual humans to go out and talk to other humans to convince them that what they have to offer was useful, that you could spend 60 hours a week, every week for years doing nothing but that. But let's also sprinkle in the administrative. Let's sprinkle in that, you know, right? There's a hundred other things we're asked to do. And that's why the job is so hard and why so many people probably are ill-equipped. Farrington says 6%. I say, yeah, it's probably not far off. You know, I might optimistically say it's 10, but not much more than that. <laughs> I think it will depend on the pocket or the industry sector, but you do see this a lot. I mean, I've worked in 450 different segments of the market and across 24 of the 26 vertical markets. And 
what's really surprised me is the consistency. The problems, first of all, in terms of their sales, they're all generic. I mean, I've, I've yet to come across anything original. They are generally caused by a failure to recruit the right people, a failure to get the best out of them, a failure to provide the tools and resources necessary for them to do their best work, and a failure to protect the salespeople from their idiot management. That those, right. those four things. And most of the management problems start in recruitment, recruiting the wrong manager, recruiting the wrong salespeople, and falling into the trap of putting a warm body in a seat. One of my clients has a lovely question, which is, uh, is he better than an empty chair? And uh, <laughs> it's a fabulous line. Wow. Um, High bar. Yeah. He, he, he also referred to an interview with a, a candidate, and he said, I mourn the investment of my time. <laughs> I really like working with Jim. So the challenge here then is, what are the winning characteristics of a great manager? What are the habits? Well, I talk about this. So my first book was published a couple of years ago called The Cadence of Excellence. And it's about what are some of the things that separate great sales managers from average ones. But the book starts with how do you solve for the number one problem? Because there are specific things that great managers do, but the very first thing that they do is they address the... I ask people this question all the time, so I'll ask you, and you, you probably will know it right off the top of your head. You asked 100 sales managers from all different industries, what's the number one problem that you deal with as a sales manager? What do you think they would say? In my experience, it's having people who shouldn't be in post or don't have the capability to do the job. So they've recruited the wrong people, or they've failed to onboard them effectively. And as a result, they set them up to fail, and then they blame the salespeople. Sure. Yeah, no, that's huge, right? We, don't, we can't get the right talent, we can't get the right people in chairs, but there's another problem they complain about first, which is time. Right. I don't have enough of it, right? I don't have enough time to do important things well. So managers who are really consistently effective have a way of, it's not just time management, but they've got a way of prioritizing their effort and making sure that they and their people are focused on first things first, right? Important things first. And the important things are not always the same from one business to the next, but they are some common things. One, right? Are we in no particular order? Are we focused on pursuing the right opportunities in the right way? Are we thoughtful in our approach to clients, because if we're like most people, we're in a commoditized space and what we're selling isn't going to differentiate us, but how we sell it, are we applying enough time to plan, then execute, then review and plan some more, right? So there's a sort of a rhythm to the way we do our work. So the best managers, I think, one, they achieve whatever level of mastery is required over time in their environment, which includes some of the things you said, right? Fighting off idiot management, I think you said, dealing with all of the distractions and making sure that salespeople are investing their time. CFOs changing the comp plan half the way through or refusing to pay commission to your top people. Yeah. We've seen crazy things like that. People listening might think, no, that doesn't happen. I promise you. It really does. does. Matt's not lying. I'll give you a great example. A pal of mine had a friend who was the top sales guy at a BMW dealership. And the dealer principal fired him because he was earning more than him. <laughs> <laughs> and talking wow. about acts of idiocy and capping. 
What on God's earth is that about? Who in their right mind would choose to stop thoroughbred from racing their best by turning them off by month eight? It's ludicrous. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. So obviously making sure salespeople are are properly incented for the right behavior. So it's achieving mastery over time. It's making sure that we've got a normal sort of rhythm of planning and doing reviewing that's appropriate for our business. It's knowing how to influence others, influence internally, influence externally. And if your people that you're hiring don't have those skills, that can be a really a critical thing that a manager, a coach needs to help people to develop. There's a list of others, but you, you, you know, the point you were making earlier was about getting the right talent in the first place. And um, I think having thought about the problem of time as much as I do, I've figured out a way where I can, you put me in any environment, I can figure that out, right? Like a lot of really good sales managers would, they'll, they'll figure out how the cadence needs to look and how do we devote time to the right things. But I think that hiring salespeople, effective salespeople for any particular environment is probably just as difficult, if not even, even harder. Because despite all of our best efforts, all the assessment tools, the profiling, predictive index, profiles international, you name it, objective management group, behavioral interviewing, reference checks, if you're still allowed to do that, parts of the world, you can't even do that anymore. The only practical way that I've found to be able to test if people actually have the capability to do this job in this environment is to put them through simulations. Here's a scenario, or here's several scenarios. I need to see how you execute this because all this other information is useful. And I've come to a conclusion about what kind of person, what kind of worker you are, but I can't really tell if and how you would do the work here. I think you've touched on some really important points here. The first thing is an interview, a sales interview should never be a pleasant experience for the candidate. They need to be put under pressure because the person that you end up with on your payroll is the one that turns to jelly when they're in front of some gnarly, vicious procurement person or they're in front of a hairy RC CFO who's been around the houses, he's sick to death of bad salespeople, and he's putting them under pressure. So that's the first thing. Second thing, you need to definitely recruit for habit. And there are critical habits. Whether you're in new business or account management, a prospecting habit is a must. And if you are not looking for organizational habit, questioning habit, listening habit, planning habit. So one of my favorite opening questions, because I want to flush out, did they prepare for the interview? Is Matt, I've been really looking forward to meeting you. Over to you. 90% of the time, that's where they just cave. Now, if they, can silence, think, right? yeah, if, if they can think <laughs> on their feet and they say, well, I'm glad that you said that because I was going to ask you a few questions and then they hit me with some great questions. But I want to know that they've planned what they're doing. They do some research. When you consider the cost of getting to a first meeting in terms of time, prospecting time, marketing spend and all that, I consider it an act of gross misconduct that you don't you wing it and you don't prepare. And the stat at the moment is 83% of first meetings fail to result in a second meeting. Now that could be five days of work, full-time work to get that meeting and a load of research and thousands of dollars worth of investment. And they're too lazy or too arrogant to put the time in. I interviewed Jacques 
Shamas yesterday. He was the CFO for Standard & Poor's, COO for Charles Schwab and for McGraw-Hill. And he now specializes in teaching salespeople how to sell to the C-suite. And he was absolutely rabid about this. That you know, salespeople who turn up unprepared, they have about two-minute life cycle because they'll right. know about it really fast. Tell me this then, given that the skill set and the mindset of a sales manager are remarkably different from a top performing salesperson, why is it that the top performing salesperson is normally thrown in the deep end and you end up losing a great salesperson and gaining a bad manager? I mean, it comes back to an answer I gave to a different question earlier, right? I think the people that are elevating these people, these great salespeople into sales management roles fundamentally don't understand what it takes to be successful in a sales management role. So they're just sort of like, no, just go figure it out, right? You figured out how to be a seller. Completely mm-hmm. different, completely different focus. It's, you know, as a seller, it's, it's about you. You're worried about your own effort. Yeah, sure, you've got people who support you. But for the most part, if you've got your act together, and you can plan and execute well, you're good. As a sales manager, day one, you realize, oh, shoot, it's, it's, I was going to say something else. It's all right, you um, can. My audience <laughs> is fine for that. <laughs> you realize, <laughs> <the hell>. <laughs> <laughs> but you realize that, oh, uh oh, it's not about me anymore, right? My production is the team's production. And that's just a different orientation. And that's one of the big barriers for great individual contributors is like, well, wait a minute. I thought this was about me. I'm like a chief something or a VP. And I thought this was about me. And and they realize, no, in order to have a consistently or continually more effective team over time, you got to leave your stuff at the door. Right? This is about them and their development. Now, there are skills that carry over selling, right? Having a plan, knowing what commitments you want from the other party, having a sense of what the dialogue is going to have to be to get them motivated to take whatever that action is you want them to take, preparing some questions, right? What is that? That's selling, right? That's what we do as, as professional salespeople. Well, that's also what it takes to prepare to have an effective coaching dialogue with someone. Same thing. Like, what do I want you to do differently, Mr. Rep? There's a specific thing I need you to do. There's a commitment I need from you. How do I get you there? What conclusions do I need you to draw? How do I get you to process information or think about things you hadn't thought of on your own? So those are skills that are portable, skills of influence, selling skills, right? That's the good news. But for people who are thrown into roles without having any sort of support or development on what does it take to tune into the development needs of individual humans on a team? And how do you help those people navigate their careers? And how do you help them navigate their rhythm, their cadence with customers? you're not equipped to do that and don't have a handle on the fact that that's what the job is, and it's going to be a rough, rough introduction to sales management because that's what the work is. Earlier on, you talked about sales managers not having enough time. And I don't know how you feel about this, but I genuinely feel that that's largely self-inflicted. Let me tell you for why. We teach something called spin junction. I don't know if you're familiar. In Sander, we have Wimp Junction, which is the buyer-seller dance. So the salesperson qualifies loosely for band. The prospect lies because they want to, uh, the information the salesperson can provide. Uh, the salesperson comes up and spills their guts and features and benefits the poor buggers to death. Then the buyer steals and gets free consultancy. 
and then the salesperson tries to tries to close. They get hit with stalls, smoke screens, objections, higher authority, and all that. When they run out of that, then they ask for a proposal, and the salesperson stupidly agrees to do that without any commitment back in return, and then spends their life chasing. Well, managers have their equivalent of this, which is they interview, then they hope and hire, then they put them on a week's product training, and they have the whack, the weekly ass-kicking meeting, and the salesperson lies to them uh, in the form of telling them what they've been doing and their forecast. The sales manager then tries to manage the numbers over which they have absolutely zero control. Then the salespeople delegate up to them, so the sales manager gets run ragged. Boss, I know this proposal has been on my desk for six weeks. It's due tomorrow. Can you write it for me? I'm too busy to prospect. Can you? Here's my it? monkey, right? Here's my yes, monkey. Here's Put him on your back, yeah. Then they feed them the excuse factory, and then the salespeople dig a foxhole, and the manager has to hope and pray. That cycle seems to be so prevalent, and they're victims of their own inability to confront the truth. They are afraid of consequence. Too often, they're afraid of conflict, and conflict is a good thing if it's constructive, and there is almost zero accountability. Again, why do they allow this to happen to them when they see it? I mean, it's a pattern that keeps repeating itself. Einstein's definition of insanity is repeating the same thing and expecting a different result. Why don't managers learn? Well, I don't think anybody's teaching them, honestly. I mean, it, thank goodness for us, right, guys like, who teach people things like this. But in all honesty, I don't, they tend to not get the guidance that they need from the people they report to. Head of, you know, chief sales officer, COO, whatever the reporting relationship is. But some of this is so fundamental. Why do salespeople run around doing things that we don't want them to do? Why do they, you know, or why won't they take up the behavior that we ask them to take up? Why won't they apply the training or use the tools? Or why won't they this? Why won't they that? Sometimes this comes down to, and I ask the people that I coach and develop every day, some version of the question, well, did you ever set the expectation? What did you actually tell them you expected? And unfortunately, the answer to that question um, is done silence more often than not. It's like, well, wait a minute. What do you mean? They should know. We've hired the right people. They should know. And I'm like, no, no, they shouldn't. No. They shouldn't know. It's your responsibility. So that's it. And that's it is management by abdication, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. Here's an example, real world. I've just come in behind as an interim sales leader. I've come in behind a chief sales officer for a middle market company who imploded, basically failed on the job after a period of just a few months, not the 16 or 17. We could have predicted he lasted if he was even reasonably successful, but he was like six or seven. And from what I can surmise, his strategy, and they're in a very competitive market, his strategy was to grow sales by simply tapping into his bench calling the team and recruiting them in from other places, people that he knew were going to be really effective sellers. And that was how he was going to grow sales. I mean, talk about the ultimate pipe dream. Hope Um, is not a very good strategy. Oh my goodness. For a number of reasons. First of all, just because someone is successful in one environment does not guarantee they'll be successful in another, especially if you don't know how to equip them with what they need to be successful in the new environment. And second, the idea that you can just bring people into an organization and it's a it's kind of a set it and forget it strategy. Let's just get them in place and they're just going to go and 
just by virtue, sheer force of their will, they're going to make stuff happen. I mean, I don't really have to tell them. I just have to give them a target and maybe we'll run some training. We hire veterans. They don't need training on anything. Right, right. How many veterans have you had in training over the years that were utterly lost and really, and needed fundamental skills that nobody ever gave them? And this is really important. Very often the veterans end up with the key accounts. They're the people who need it most. And in fact, they want it. If they leave, they're going to take those key accounts with them because they're going to go somewhere where either the opportunity is better or that they're actually going to be taken care of. Because one of the most fundamentally useful lessons I've learned is all children trapped in adult bodies. And they're scared. When I was speaking to Jacques yesterday, he was saying that the C-suite are scared when they meet the salesperson because they don't know how to fix their problem. And they're hoping that the salesperson can help them fix it. This is a really interesting question then. One thing I'm rabid about with my sales managers is that they are looking at their succession and they spend 18 to 24 months developing the salespeople who they've earmarked to take over. And they get them involved in interviewing and selection and running meetings and forecasting and pipeline management and coaching so that when they move into the job, they can actually do it. So what do you advise people to do? Roughly something very similar. And I'll illustrate, there's a quick story I'll tell in a moment. But um, the sales manager's job, he or she are responsible for making sure that every member of their team, to the extent that that's possible, could potentially step up and lead. I mean, after all, that's how organizations grow. Here's a quick story to illustrate the point. It was a number of years ago, I was running the enterprise sales team. It was at Huffway, actually. And I had a team of, I think, five pretty senior level sellers. We were having a conversation about two new people who were in the middle market group that we were going to be bringing up. It was, you know, like moving from in in, uh, American baseball, you go from the farm, the minor leagues to the major leagues. So they're moving from the minors to the majors. And one of the more senior people on the call really, she challenged me and she was threatened essentially. So it's obvious, I I forget the words she used, but it was obvious that my plan was to take opportunity away from her and give it to these other people. And I said, look, I'm sorry that that's your, what you think. First of all, that's absolutely not how I'm looking at it. But let me put the question to you. How do you think we're going to grow? Are you, you're producing $3 million now. Are you going to produce six next year? I mean, we all reach a limit of production. And if you guys are really at the top of your games, you can get progressively better. But this business doesn't grow by our hanging a giant, a larger quota on you every year. It grows by developing people who can take on leadership roles. My hope is when you hear that I'm bringing people from the minors to the majors, is that you see opportunity, not that you're threatened. So for managers who are going to be great developers of people who really can drive growth in a sales organization, they need to get that, that it's okay if I essentially work myself out of a job because the people that I've developed, they think strategically, they manage their time well, they add value at any, every interaction, they influence others in a really effective way, internally and externally. These are the people this business needs to be able to grow. So who knows, maybe in the process, I might create some new opportunity for myself, right? So I shouldn't be threatened by that. Because if we have a team that goes from six sellers 
to 12 that now needs three managers. Well, guess who's, who's going to be in that manager manager role? Is it going to be me, the person who demonstrated the capability to develop people into management to effective coaches? Well, yeah, presumably so. That's how I should be thinking about this. And that's what I encourage sales managers to do. They've got to change their perspective if they think that bringing people up, making them equally, if not more effective, you know, if you're threatened by that, that's your ego talking, not your, not your business sense. Ryan Holiday's book, Ego is the Enemy, is a great starting point for anybody who's stuck in that particular rut. And a rut is a coffin with both ends kicked out. So <laughs> let me ask you this, because ego plays a part in this particular scenario as well. How do you feel about player managers? So managers who sell and manage. I tell people in general, I think that's a really, really difficult role to execute. And I generally advise against it unless you know, it's a small business and there's no way around it. It's really difficult for two reasons. First, managers who have their own book of business and who are incented to grow their own customer relationships generally or do that at the expense of developing others and others' relationships. Yep. So their incentives totally pull them in the wrong direction. And second, you know, when you have your own accounts, that means you have client demands and you've got to be responsive to them and you've got to, you've got to snap to it. And as an individual seller, it's okay for your whole world and focus to shift temporarily day to day to deal with that client crisis. Hopefully it doesn't happen. Hopefully you've headed it off, but it happens. But as a manager with so many demands on your time, it's really difficult to be responsive to the needs of clients. So it exacerbates that no time for important things problem. I said, we all deal with as sales managers. So those are the two big reasons that I counsel companies to not go down that path. I, I think there's a third, which sometimes occurs as well. When leads are coming in, it sets the manager up in competition with their people. And yep. that creates resentment. Again, for those of you who are listening to this, seriously contemplate taking your managers off territory and have them hand over their accounts to their salespeople. And that handover can be a great training opportunity and coaching opportunity so that they can see how the manager manages the accounts, how they manage their territory, and the handover of the relationship. And those initial meetings, use that to pre-call plan, rehearse, post-call debrief. And again, you talk about coaching a lot. I think one of the things that really frustrates me is how many managers are essentially spreadsheet jockeys and they're not out in the field. And in channel in particular, I see this where they don't spend anywhere near enough time helping their partners get deals over the line. Your salespeople, whether they're direct or indirect, want to make money. They want to be successful. They like being at the top of the leaderboard. They like developing those relationships and helping their clients. It's your job to help them. You have four functions in my book. Hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day, and then protect them from the idiocy of your senior management. I'm curious about something. Your emphasis, again, is on coaching. Can you explain yeah. to the audience the difference between managing the supervisory role, training, coaching and mentoring i'll go to coaching first right because it's it's uh the most important uh, yeah i think it is 
and it's critical to the development of the humans on our teams. And coaching is about diagnosing and working with salespeople to address issues or opportunities that are affecting their performance and doing so in a very deliberate and focused way. And it's for that reason that coaching is a, it's a really, I'm sometimes asked by clients, like, what's the coaching plan for this team as if there's one plan? And I said, well, there's an outline, there's one approach, but it starts with diagnosis. After that, I'll get back to you. Like, you know, we have to figure out what is the one thing or the one or two things that each individual member of the team has to work on and the the working moment, on it. Yeah. At the moment, because they will evolve. Absolutely. We yeah. sure hope they do, right? Yeah. We sure hope they do. And they don't devolve, degenerate. It does change over time. But the key thing I think that's different about coaching and other, the other elements is this is pull strategy. This, this is getting people to acknowledge their gaps and decide what action they want to take to address them. This isn't me telling them, which is more like management, right? I can't help but notice that you've got a crap pipeline. We really <laughs> need you to prospect more, right? That's a management conversation and it has to happen. It's important. But coaching is about, look, let's talk about what is it going to take to achieve that end, right? We, want, we both agree that it's important to address this gap in the pipeline, but let's talk about what you're doing to prospect. Let's talk about what you're doing to get commitments from customers on first meetings and what we're doing to get second meetings. Let's work on that. And let's, let's arrive at a point where you feel really good about the plan to get continually better, incrementally better. And the last part about coaching is you've got to put effort into all this. And I've got to make sure that I know how to get that incremental effort out of you. You've got to do more there's a reason you're not as effective as you could be. And it's probably because you're not working on something really critical. I need you to be motivated to work on that. And I need you to own it. And that's what coaching is. So the management piece, I think, is, is kind of, it's obvious what that is. The difference between coaching and mentoring, I don't know where you, you draw the line on this, Marcus. But for me, mentoring is maybe there's less of a firm commitment from one conversation to the next. Mentors make suggestions, but it's very much a, you tell me, I, you know, I don't know, you should try it. Let me know next time we talk if, if you feel like that's made any difference for you. Coaching in the context of a sales organization or in a team tends to arrive at, no, no, this is the thing that you said you were going to do by this date. It's specific, it's measurable, you know, smart, right? And now we're going to pick up our next conversation going right back to that and saying, okay, did you do that? Because I'm here to hold you accountable accountable to the commitments you made. I think there's a certain there's an accountability loop that's a little bit different with coaching to mentoring. That's one of the main differences in my in my opinion. I think the other principal difference between mentoring and coaching is that coaching is the manager asking questions and the salesperson solving their own problem to a large degree and the manager then will fill in maybe the 10 or 20% that they can't but mostly through coaching uh, through uh, questioning and Again, one of the most fundamentally important skills that should be taught at school and throughout college and university and throughout your working life, questioning, effective questioning for insight, not just to gather information. This is one of the key differentiators that I see. When I work with the top one or 2%, they ask phenomenal questions. Their credibility comes from the questions that they ask they deliver value through the insight 
that they by ripping the scales from your eyes with just one fantastic question after another. And a great coach does that as well. But I don't know if you've read Bill Bartlett's book, The Sales Coach's Playbook. I have not. It's a really good one. And he talks about the three Ps of potency, permission, and I've just had a mind blank. That's what happens when you get old. Um, (laughs) uh, Potency, permission. It'll come to me probably as soon as we finish. And protection. That's it. So potency, permission, and protection. Both sides have to feel that they have the right to speak. And now we have equal business stature in this conversation. Mm -hmm. Protection Mm -hmm. is that I'm not going to punish you for whatever you say, and it's not going outside of this room. And permission is that you have permission to ask difficult questions. You have permission to say no. If you don't feel that it's the right thing, then you're allowed to put your hand up and say no. And the best coaches I know invariably follow that principle, whether they yeah. they have that formal structure or not. Yeah, that all sounds very familiar to me, right? He's got a certain way of describing it, but that that resonates for sure. It sounds like he's done some coaching, a little yeah. bit of coaching himself, right? He's a coach to the stars as well. He's a right. <laughs> he's one of the five people who's had the greatest impact on my career in the last 20 years. So amazing man. So I have this other question around the onboarding process, because again, I see people hire talented individuals, and then basically they leave them to sink or swim. And I think that's a criminal waste. When you're spending the price of a small mortgage in order to recruit somebody, because you're paying them a hefty basic, you're paying the recruiter, you're paying the advertising, you've invested time, money, resource, uh, your legal departments and HR department are involved. You might have to pay them some form of guarantee. You've got to provision them. You've got to put them out in the field. And you put them through two weeks of miserable product training, and you don't onboard them. The first 120 days, a new employee is putting you, the job, the company, on probation. Is my boss an ass? Do I like the people that I'm working with? Is this the job that I was sold? Can I do it? Do I like my customers? Was I better off where I was? And even with veterans, especially with veterans, that first 120 days is absolutely critical. What do you advise people to do in terms of developing a strong onboarding process and a playbook? Can I be successful here? That's the other big question, right? The advice I give, well, there's a few key pieces. One is if you're investing a lot of that onboarding period, educating people on product, internal policy, it's a waste of time. Yeah. Because what do we want them doing? We want them as soon as possible going out and having value creating kind of conversations with clients. Well, why don't we have them practice that? Why don't we have them actually go out and admit, hey, I knew, but I'm here to have a conversation with you about what you're trying to achieve. I couldn't possibly sell you anything, right? <laughs> I wouldn't even know what to sell. I have no idea, right? But I'm here to have conversation. I'm interested. And as part of my process, I want to talk with you know, real life clients who have the problems that we solve. So that's the first big recommendation. And my, my uh, business partner, Dan, and I talk about it. Uh, we call it outside in onboarding. If the normal process is all sort of internally focused, turn that out and make it all about understanding what clients are saying about the problems we solve, get to know their language, get into their environment as quickly as possible. That's a critical thing. Do that at the expense of the internal 
product education. I give people just enough of a handle on the problems we solve and how we solve them. High level, summary level, no more than that, because all that stuff just crowds out the really critical stuff, which is listening for what clients say and how they describe their own problems and opportunities. That's what the work is. It's listening and understanding those things. The other thing is, I don't think I've ever seen a perfect onboarding plan, but I know that any onboarding plan beats the hell out of a, you know, we've hired you, here's what we're doing for the first 10 days and the rest is kind of, (laughs) it's up to you, you know? Another thing that we do, I don't know if other disciplines, if that happens when they hire accountants, I have a sense that it probably doesn't where they say, here's your ledger, here's your pencil, your computer, (laughs) go and account. You know, right? <laughs> they'd be like, they'd be like, what do you, what account, what? Like, for, for who? What am I doing? You know what? That department is just badly mismanaged when it comes yeah. to onboarding as sales. Yeah. I have yet to go to one single organization where onboarding was any more than, and they might do a month. I've even heard of 90 days, I think twice in 32 years. But generally, it's read the operations manual. I remember going to a company and the first three hours was reading through a manual. This was my first impression of the company. I, I stayed a year because I thought yet another gap in my CV wouldn't do me any good. That set me up immediately thinking this is a, it's basically a shithole. What message do you want to send to that new hire, right? Well, that would be a great example of how you deliver the message. We actually haven't thought about this very much. So here, like read this. Maybe this will be useful. We don't know. So you want to give new hires evidence that you've actually thought about the process. And I would say, if you don't have one today, don't go for perfect. Just go for something. Go for halfway decent. And build that plan out. I would recommend making it so that your onboarding plan goes at least one full, if not two full lengths of your typical sales cycle. Some people might be listening saying, "Uh uh-oh, we've got a 12-month sales cycle. I'm saying... Okay. So what do you expect to onboard somebody in 30 days into a a selling environment where it takes a year to develop needs and demonstrate capability and propose and win the deal? It's an unrealistic expectation. Your onboarding plan should be, in my opinion, at least a sales cycle length. And if you're having trouble filling in the blanks, there are a lot of people writing about what great onboarding plans look like. Call me, call Marcus, right? There are people who have ideas and we've got examples we can show you. And this, this is what people include. There's no perfect outline, but have something, for goodness sake. I'll give you a really good example of what happens when you do this. I work with a hospitality group, and they had, I mean, their onboarding plan was basically talk about the property and show them a few rooms and then hit, have them hit the phones. We in- implemented a 120 day onboarding plan, and the last two hires have hit quota within four weeks. They started hitting quota within four weeks because, and you touched on it earlier, and this is one of the things that drives me crazy, role play. Actually getting them to role play, doing their 30 second commercial, doing their upfront contract, doing their pain discovery, having conversations with different job titles that they're going to be speaking to of different personality types and different moods. So positive, neutral, negative. And so many salespeople whine and bitch and moan and grumble and complain and say, oh, I don't like doing role play. It's your damn job. Do it. Your, your job is yeah. to get better. It's to practice. And you should never practice in front of your prospects. 
right. you're practicing in front of your prospects, basically, you need the pink slip. The stakes are too high, right? The stakes are too high. And this is why managers who are really effective get out ahead of the planning and conversation. And they know what their people are doing to ensure that their interactions with clients are valuable. The data jockeys, the spreadsheet jockeys you were referring to earlier, it's an arm's length or more than one arm's length approach to where all the differentiation occurs. And it's not happening in that spreadsheet. It's when your people have conversations with customers where they help them see things that they didn't see otherwise. Opportunities, issues, different ways to get the outcome they want. If you're not engaged in helping your salespeople do that, it's criminally negligent in this job. I agree. So when you're looking at the CVs of prospective managers, what are you looking for in terms of longevity, results, behaviors, habits? Well, the bar set kind of low for longevity. I think the one of the I think it was CSO Insights or somebody had I think it was sixteen, 16 or seventeen months. months. Yeah. yeah. So one thing I'd love to see is somebody who's been consistently effective and has shown teams that generate over quota performance in multiple years. Wouldn't that be nice? Right, two, three. Five, right? That's a good sign. But the other but in thing, terms, I, uh, are we talking in terms of salespeople or managers? Managers, right? Okay. Whose teams? Whose teams deliver? Right. I guess yeah. another marker is how many of the people on your team hit quota. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. If it's one star, right, then that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for somebody who got better performance out of a whole group of people. And maybe you can show me how performance improved for the whole team year over year. That's why it's so important to try to see, you know, somebody's been in the job more than 16 months. It's, it's possible. If they haven't, pretty good sign that they didn't do that and there's no data. But the other thing that I want them to talk me through is how do you deal with a performance problem? How do you address somebody who's not sufficiently productive? What's your approach? What's the process? It doesn't matter how long. Just, just talk me through it. What do you, what do? You do? And how do you get people to commit to doing things that they otherwise might not do? What's your process for that? If you can describe that to me, I'm going to put you through a scenario and I'm going to play the role of the rep, the reluctant rep. And you're going to talk me through and we're going to, I'm going to see how you do it. I do have a question here because uh, I see so often that in job descriptions and in, in job adverts, motivate the team. I have a real problem with this because you cannot motivate anyone to do anything ever. Motivation is an internal force. And again, it comes back to leaders not really understanding human beings or the job. How do you drive the best out of somebody right from the outset? Well, right from the very beginning, I think the first thing you have to do is understand the, the, and this is actually something I'm writing about. It's like in the first chapter of the new book but I referred to it loosely in second chapter of the first book, of Cadence, Cadence of Excellence. But the new book starts with, look, you've got to understand the objective value of the work that our people do is clear. And the objective reasons for why they have chosen to do this job, they want to make a certain amount of money, they're looking for a certain role with a certain kind of prestige, on and on. But there is, for every human, there is a subjective reason, a real why that they want to do this. And in the interview process, I asked that question. So what are you trying to achieve? And what is it that, why do you do that? And there's this myth that salespeople are coin-operated. Oh, they're all money-motivated. I haven't found that to be true at all. Of particular when I was headhunting, money uh-huh. came fifth or sixth. 
Yeah, absolutely. And for top performers, their attitude about it is like, yeah, look, I'll make the money. I'm not worried about it. I just get, don't cap my comp. I'll be good. It's fine. Like I'm interested in what the base is, but that's not the first thing we're talking about. But for people in an interview setting, if they tell me I'm money motivated, man, I'm out there to earn, I'm like, oh, strike one. Yeah. <laughs> and if it comes up again, it's strike two and strike three very quickly thereafter because it's, it's bull crap. It is not, ultimately, that is not the thing that motivates people to do this job. This is hard work. Sales management, if I hear a sales manager say, I'm in it for the money, be like, well, then go be a salesperson. Don't do this. Yeah. And this is 10 times harder and you'll make less. Yeah. So I don't believe you. Right. Or maybe you just don't understand the job and you're telling me you think what you think I need to hear. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't want to hire you. You should go work for my competitor, you know? But um, a really good reference. Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's understand the subjective why, the reason why this person wants to grow, why they want to get continually better. Maybe it's something they you know, they want to demonstrate something to their children about the value of hard work. They want to buy their family that vacation or there's a second home or whatever it is. But for every human, there is something like that. So it's yeah. your job as a manager to understand that first. And like we said about something earlier, that evolves, right? Those things change and you have to continually remain plugged in. And that's the, where the, the reason why. is so key. Because coaching yep. is where you learn that stuff. And, that's, yes. and you can keep reminding them of what their motivation is. Yeah. I do have another question. I, I lied. That was the last one. One thing I see is that managers see recruitment as a chore. I see it Mm. as their single most important function and filling the bench is their equivalent of prospecting for new customers. And it should not be something that's done reactively because our research suggests that A players are one in 200. Now, Mm. I believe um, it. If you have a half a percent probability of being in front of an A player, you want to be in front of a lot of people. So eventually you can get some A players and a bench of good B-plus players so that when a vacancy arises or you spot an absolute superstar, you can create a role for them. But recruitment should be an ongoing daily activity. It's not something that you do last minute. Again, I have to ask the question, what does it take to shift the leadership's belief system to encourage and drive that behavior in management, even measure it and compensate it? I think you have to help senior management reflect on and recognize the fact that probably the only source of differentiation they really have in the marketplace, despite their brilliant strategy, mm-hmm. is the people that are going out and talking to their customers. And if you leave that to chance, in fact, I, we, haven't, we haven't officially titled the second book, but the subheading is, or part of it is going to be the ultimate differentiator. People are going to look at it and be like, wait a minute, this is about talent management. And I'll be like, well, yeah, that's the ultimate differentiator, how you go about ensuring that the people you put out in the field are creating value for customers and are competitively different is the work of the sales manager, right? And it may be all that he or she really needs to master. You know, people will get up and wait a minute, what about methodology and process? Yes, yes, sure, right? But if you don't have the right people and you don't have a commitment to getting the right people in the organization and out in the field with customers, then guess what, Mr. Senior Executive? We're not executing the strategy. We're always going to fall short of it. So I think you have to help senior managers see that the talent that we have in the field is more than just some coin-operated thing that we aim at the market. It is the single most important and the first way we differentiate 
from our competitors. Then and only then will they get like, oh, okay, wow. All right, we're not paying anywhere near enough attention to that differentiator. And we have to have a different orientation to talent. You've touched on something that what my friend Ron Verpereis came up with this lovely line, which is attention is a currency. You pay attention. And I don't think there's enough attention paid to what matters, what's really important. People pay scant attention to recruitment. They pay scant attention to the welfare of their salespeople and their motivation. And they focus on the wrong end of the problem. They also tend to focus on what they think should be important. But that's not how you get the best out of human beings. Matt, tell me this. Who's influencing you in terms of content, blogs, books, videos, podcasts? Yeah. Well, still and always Neil Rackham, right? He's still, he's still producing content, still doing podcasts, and he's a, an incredibly compelling guy. And I love the behavioral research he's done over the years. More immediately, though, as I'm writing in the book and reading other people's views on talent management, meeting people, there are a couple of books. I'm looking over here to my right. One of them is called The Talent Mindset. It's written by a psychologist, a lady named Stacy Finer, who's a, a business psychologist here in the States. It's excellent. Uh, it's, it's really well done. It defines a process for using talent management as a strategic weapon in your business. It's really written mostly for small to medium businesses, but I think there's value for anybody, even in a large organization that's, uh, that's responsible for talent development. Sales managers should absolutely pick that one up. There's a great book that's on my bookshelf. I'm pivoting. Obviously, the book by my colleague, uh, Love and Selling by Dan Smeda is a book that I pick up every so often. It's entertaining. It's really well written. He's a riot. There's another book that's completely off the reservation when it comes to sales, but it's there's an, a, two anthologies. One is called Standing O and the other is Standing O Encore. And they're both subtitled A Book of Gratitude for Life Lessons, compiled by a friend of mine, Scott McGregor, who's here in the U.S., just great stories of now I've written one of them, one about my father that I hope is inspirational, but it's written by a bunch of really, frankly, more successful and interesting people than me, <laughs> Olympic athletes, CEOs, and just crazy collection of an amazing collection of people. So those are three great ones that I'm reading now. And, and I just, you know, like a lot of people, I'm kind of a voracious reader of stuff, even if it's a book that I can't finish, always reading. I've mentioned it probably on 30 or 40 of my podcasts. Just Listen by Mark Goulston is an absolute must. And from a management perspective, almost nothing better. Okay, you've got a golden ticket. You can go back to advise your idiot 23-year-old self how to avoid a lifetime of idiocy and self-sabotage. What would you advise young Matt to do? <laughs> a couple of things. First, I'd say, hey, pick up a book maybe on this job, <laughs> this profession that you've decided to take up. That might be a good idea. Don't wait like seven years. And, uh, and don't rely on the lessons of guys who also didn't learn from a book or have any coaching, right? That'd be another thing I would recommend. Yeah, definitely. But um, don't just rely on your what you think is your God-given smarts and don't wing it. Even more now, it's almost, 20, it's almost 2020. Can you believe that? I, I can't yeah. believe it. But now more than ever, our customers know when we're prepared. They know when we're ready. They know when we're different. And they know when we're not. And every interaction we have with them, I just think back to my 23, like how many of those interactions that I just flat out waste? Just because I was like, I don't pre prepare. <laughs> who, who prepares? That's for, 
Yeah, that's for losers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but uh God, that's I wish I'd learned that lesson. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I, I, I wish I'd learned that lesson sooner. I was speaking to my coach earlier today, and what was really interesting is we were discussing how the buyer has changed their behavior. Mm-hmm. And salespeople who haven't evolved to adapt to that, they're in deep trouble. I was speaking to Mario Martinez on my last podcast. Sure. And he went out to about 220 meetings. And in 70% of the cases, he was still having to try and convince the CEOs that the internet and uh, modern technology was something that was worthwhile. Yeah. And when we think about it, I look at what's happened in the channel. I look at what's happened in direct sales. I look at large organizations. I'm not going to name them, but they, they haven't evolved to take into account. They, they bought into Oh, they've created cloud and software as a service and all that kind of stuff. But their mm-hmm. comp plans are still based on perpetual licensing. They say that we're into using all this social media, LinkedIn, sales enablement, but they keep getting people to do the same things. They measure things like number of dials, number of proposals, number of yeah. demos, none of which makes any damn difference. Again, my response to what Matt's said in terms of his lessons is evolve. If you green, you grow. If you ripe, you rot. And read. Get out there. Pick up a book. I was speaking to one of my clients, and I asked him whether he'd read the books that I'd given him. Oh, I think they're in my drawer. And my heart sank. I mean, it really sank. And I said, how is that knowledge going to transfer from your drawer to your mind? And there was a slightly sheepish grin. If he wants coaching, he better do the reading because it ain't coming otherwise because I'm right. not wasting my time. And again, I think as a manager, uh, you need to put the onus of responsibility back on your people to do the necessary behavior and take responsibility for your own development. And I think uh, managers often rescue and mollycoddle and they let stuff slide. And if you let stuff slide, you deserve what you tolerate. Absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. Matt McDarby, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I would love to do it again when your next book comes out. When is that out? We're targeting mid-December, so we're just a few weeks away, Lord willing. Otherwise, it'll be the 1st of January. (laughs) Okay. Let me know as soon as it's out, and I'll get a copy, and I'll pop it out to my network. How can people get hold of you? Well, obviously, LinkedIn, primary uh, LinkedIn, Matt McDarby, M-A-T-T-M-C-D-A-R-B-Y. The book, my first book, The Cadence of Excellence, is available on Amazon, free for Kindle, unlimited subscribers if you're one of those. And then the new book, as I said, will be announced on uh, all channels where I put content out. So I really appreciate the opportunity, Marcus, and uh, it was great. great it's, talking you. it's genuinely been insightful and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. This is Marcus Kauke from the Inquisitor Podcast signing off. If there's somebody that you know who would be a really good guest for the podcast and you'd like me to interview them, please pass on their details to me or pass my details on to them. And if you'd be a good guest, then come on. Direct message me on LinkedIn or email me at mkauke at sandler.com and let's have a chat about what we can talk about on the podcast. Happy selling. Until next time. Bye-bye.